chapter 8. As we've been reviewing uh, at the first few minutes of the class, basic promises from the Word of God and the uh, going over the uh, faith rest drill of the three-step of grabbing the promise, um, letting it circulate in our souls to the point where we perceive the rationale behind that promise and uh, seeing that there's closure in the sense that unbelief doesn't go anywhere. And then finally the idea, well, when we have grabbed the promise, step two, when we have seen the rationale and the promise, uh, the third step is that faith should come and we should feel comfortable with that. And um, we've been going over Romans 8.28, uh, that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are the call according to his purpose. And I've been stressing um, the fact that it's a de- it gets back to the e- <clears throat> debate over evil. And that fundamentally, if we are to believe that all things work together for good, what in effect we're doing is that <clears throat> we are believing... Let's see if I can focus this a little bit better. <clears throat> we are believing that there's a reason, rational, there's a reason for this, <clears throat> disaster or whatever it is. <clears throat> we um, believe that it is good. God is not a bad God. We may not know the exact reason. We may not know the particular way that good it fits in. So this rational and ethical justification is kept above the line. That is, we trust that God knows this. The judge of all the earth shall do right, Genesis 18.25. So that's the rationale that supports all things work together for good. And down here where we live, we, we have things that we can look at to fortify our faith. And one of those things, remember, is the cross. Why does that, in this particular case? Because the cross is the place where God resolved in a rational and ethical fashion the problem of the Old Testament. That how could God be just and at the same time forgive sin? And that was never justified in the Old Testament. It is justified in the New Testament only after the cross of Christ. So since God has solved that area and that rationally fits together, and then he's established the precedent for the rest of the unknowns to come together someday. But in the meantime, we have at least nine rationales to get to faith, a faith rest, uh, and then we went over those. But tonight, I want to do a little different approach. Let's suppose when you come to Romans 8.28, it's a kind of situation in your life where it's not really a discussion over whether it's good. Um, you may, that may not be the point of conflict. That may not be the the thing that's bothering you. Uh, It may more be a situation where, okay, um, this is in itself is bad. I can see that good things can come from it. I just have trouble believing that the good things will come. In other words, 
that I see it can happen, but will it happen? And so in the rationale here, fortunately, you see the rationale right in the text. Because if you go to the next verse, and verse 30, verse 29, verse 30, follow there, right after 8.28, all things work together good, notice what you see. Now, this wouldn't be in most Christian books that you buy in the Christian bookstore. Because when you hit verse 29, you're dealing with doctrine. And we can't do that. You know, we have to have the devotional approach. But verse 29, verse 30 is a, a heavy doctrinal approach. One of the most powerful areas and one of the most involved and deep doctrines of the Christian faith. Predestination. Election. And you see how comfortable Paul is? He deals with a practical problem. He throws it out, verse 28. And then, like, you know, no problem. He zips on to verse 29. And he says, For whom he foreknew... He also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, them he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now, I mean, he just zips right through verse 29 and 30. And every one of those words in verse 30 is a whole vast area of scriptural teaching. That's advanced doctrine here. So you get the, the fact that in verse 28, you remember it was qualified, all things work together for good, only to certain people. Now, the justification is that verse 29 and 30 support that fork in the road. In other words, all things work together for good for a particular group. And that particular group is defined in verses 29 and 30. And then, it's interesting, but verse 31 and verse 32, we'll, we can deal with that next time, but verse 31 and verse 32 take us into another promise. So not only do many Christians memorize Romans 8.28, but a lot, of, a lot of us have memorized verse 31 and 32. And what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's going to stand against us? Now, the world can look upon that as a very arrogant conceited type of thing. It's not arrogant and conceit because it's not our merit. It's God's work. So, the only arrogance is it's His work, it's not ours. So, verse 31, though it may be misinterpreted by your neighbor, is a very, very powerful verse. Verse 32 is another powerful verse. We'll get into some of the reasoning behind verse 32. Practical thing. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? It's the argument from the greater to the lesser. If God did the greater thing, he can do the lesser thing. The greater thing is in saving you. The lesser thing is in sanctifying you. So, that's, that's another set of promises. But, here again, it gets back to the simple principle of bringing to bear the power of God through trusting his promises in the middle of a situation. And so all come to, tied together here as we get into the church age and see our position in Christ. But I just want to do this every Thursday night. We want to start with a promise to get into the mentality a certain pattern. And we'll see why as we go on. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. And we ask that as we go into the areas of the... Um, areas of truth that stem from the ascension and session of your Son, that you open our hearts to these great truths 
and comfort our hearts and give us that uh, point of stability in our lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, we're going through um, the ascent and uh, session of Christ. And uh, when we do that, we want to remember from the Old Testament passages that we've seen that the Lord Jesus Christ is physically located tonight somewhere. In His deity, He's omnipresent. But in His humanity, He is localized. And that issue of the location of the Lord Jesus Christ at the Father's right hand, we're dealing with the ascent and session of Christ. We've gone over the Old Testament pictures. The, some of the things that are associated with this uh, is an uh, installation in the sense that He is now uh, anointed. He's, uh, he was anointed, of course, in His earthly ministry. But He's anointed in the sense of uh, having the crown. So He is, as it were, um, crown king. Not yet of Israel. But He is crowned the king. He is in his humanity because before, if you think about it in time, he was always the father's son in his deity. And then we had the incarnation, then we had his life, we had his death, we had a resurrection. Now we've got humanity, deity and humanity united in one person. So now his humanity sits at the father's right hand and we have a new situation. And this new situation is what is the setting, and that's why we're spending so much time on it in this chapter. We're going to spend quite a bit of detail because I don't believe this truth is taught enough, it is not repeated enough, so that we get into subjectivism and mysticism and everything else later on when we start talking about the Holy Spirit and this and that. It doesn't start with Pentecost. It starts with a session of Christ. I'm saying the church starts here, but the rationale behind the church really begins when Christ takes, sits on the throne. Now, we're going to look at it from the standpoint of a truth that we learned back uh, years ago, and that was when we dealt with the doctrine of judgment salvation. And we said that when God judges, He always saves. And when he saves, he always judges. That's why we call that judgment salvation. It's a principle all through the scriptures. In sanctification, he does that. He judges our flesh that we may be delivered. Uh, when we become Christians, then we realize that Christ died for my sins, that I might be saved. There it is, judgment and salvation. Now, do you remember, as we went back in the framework, we said that that doctrine of judgment salvation shows up historically. And uh, the place that it shows up, of course, first place it showed up, was at the uh, flood. And when God caused the flood to happen on the earth, he judged the earth, but he saved Noah and the people in the boat. The very same act that judged was the very same act that saved. You watch that. That's a pattern of how God works. He judges and he saves. And you want a simple picture of this. And this is why if you capture these simple pictures from Old Testament history, 
it allows you to organize the New Testament in your mind. And that's why these are so good to, to go back to. A child can remember the flood story. But that flood story is a picture of judgment salvation. And then we said there was a second illustration from history that we used for the doctrine of judgment salvation, and that was the Exodus. And there, God judged Egypt in order to save Israel. So again, you have the pattern of judgment and salvation. And you can think of the angel of death, and you saw Cecil DeMille's Ten Commandments, and this spooky little green stuff comes down. But whatever your image is of the Exodus, that is judgment and salvation. Okay. Now, we're going to take that Old Testament picture, because those Old Testament pictures were given for our edification. They were revelations of the pattern of how God works, and we're going to now take the content of that doctrine, judgment, salvation, and we're going to go one, two, three, four, through what Christ is doing, and what the session means, uh, as far as salvation, judgment, salvation goes. So in your notes on page 14, I begin this process. The doctrinal consequences of the ascension and session the final countdown of judgment salvation. We are in the age when judging and saving is happening. And it starts with the uh, ascent and session of Christ and uh, his attaining the credentials and the rank to carry this out. So the first thing we always see about judgment salvation is grace before judgment. God doesn't judge without warning. He always warns before his judges. That's grace. And again, it's an image that you pick up from the flood. Remember? Let's turn to... Um, well, we, we know the story of the flood. God preached through Noah. 120 years. So there was a period of grace before judgment. Now whether people believed it, obviously not too many people believed it, treated it in a trivial way, well, too bad, the announcement was there. Now one of the things to notice about this pattern is that if you look carefully at the fact that God has to judge before he saves, uh, he has to be gracious before he judges, if you look at that pattern, you realize that that defines grace. And it keeps you, it, keeps, it protects you from trivializing grace. Because the tendency is always to drift over into this kind of mode of thinking about God's grace as, um, as that he's lax. He's kind of relaxed his standards. And um, now's the time to get away with things. And so that becomes a view, uh, operationally, that becomes kind of a cheap way of looking at grace. But if you'll remember to link those two words together, the grace comes before judgment, and by the way, ends. Grace doesn't go on forever. Grace comes up to a point and then, bingo, that's it. No more grace. 
And so it, 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 just like evil is bracketed, grace is bracketed. It's bracketed on the right side on the timeline by the judgment that happens. And the, the, the gracious period in Genesis chapter 6 was 120 years. Now, if, you, if we went through the Exodus story, we could go through Exodus chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, and you know the story um, where Moses and Aaron came repeatedly to the, to the Pharaoh, and the Pharaoh gave them a bunch of flack, and then the magicians of Pharaoh counseled against Moses and Aaron, and this seesaw went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So we have a period of grace associated with the Exodus, just like we have a period of grace with the flood. Both of those periods of grace terminate when the judgment happens. Now what we're going to see is that in, if you turn to Acts 17 a moment, that's why in Acts chapter 17, Paul uses that language when he was evangelizing the Greeks. And it's, it's a little different than what we're generally used to hearing in evangelistic messages. And, and that is that uh, it's almost like given as a threat. In Acts chapter 17, verse 30, God says, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men everywhere that they should repent. Now there's the gospel invitation in a street confrontation sort of context. And he's saying that, that it, there's an order here. And it, there's an implied threat in the gospel. And the threat is you better believe in Jesus Christ while you've got a chance. That's, that's the way it comes across. Yeah, you, you have a, cha a choice, but it's not going on forever. And that is the, the, the way to blend the force into the gospel presentation. Now, if you remember, one of the pictures of Jesus Christ reigning from the Father's right hand was Psalm 2. So. If you go back over to Psalm 2, we're going to hop, hop around a little bit tonight uh, if, because of the isolated verses. Um, but if you go to Psalm 2, where is one of the, remember the four pictures we had? Psalm 68, Psalm 2, Psalm 110, and uh, Daniel 7. All four of those passages are used by New Testament authors to picture Christ um, as the uh, one who, who is coming as judge. And in Psalm 2, the conclusion in verse 10, 11, and 12, the very end of that psalm, remember Psalm, one, psalm 2, verse 1, it starts out, the nation's in an uproar, and verse 4, the second part of the psalm, uh, God's laughing at the nations, God scoffs at them. And he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, that's the Son speaking, the Lord Jesus Christ, um, or, or the Father actually. But as for me, I have installed my King, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, upon Mount Zion, my holy mountain. Then in, in, in verse 7, you have the Son speaking. 
I will declare the decree of literally God, of, of the Father here. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And then we come to verse 10, the fourth part of Psalm 2. And this is the conclusion in a practical way of all that truth in the first three parts of the psalm. If God's son reigns, and if God's son has rank and power and privilege to rule the nations, then the conclusion is, verse 10 and 11, you better worship the son. You worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice, and you better do homage to the son lest he become angry and you perish in the way. Grace before judgment. There's always the threat of judgment in the message of grace. Always marry those two together and it will keep you balanced. Okay, that was one area of judgment salvation. Grace that terminates in a judgment. Now we come to the second part of that truth, and that is that God perfectly discriminates between the saved and the unsaved. Now all this is, is just another iteration of the truth that God is going to separate good and evil. There's not going to be three categories here. There's only two. Not three. Not four. Not six. Not a democracy of religious opinions. There are only two history winds up with. The good, it's not our good, it's imputed goodness from the Lord Jesus Christ, and those who have rejected Christ. So there's a perfect discrimination that's embedded in the whole purpose of history. And that's why it appears here as a second point, the perfect discrimination. And we're going to look at some of the ways in which God discriminates. And so maybe if you'll turn to the uh, first of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, you see this right off the bat when Jesus begins his ministry. We also are using the word deliberately, the word discrimination, because everybody misuses it today. The Bible is built upon discrimination. The Bible is built upon violence. And when you talk this way, people go, huh, what did you say? I said, the Bible is built upon discrimination and violence. Now, what do I mean by that? Discrimination is right here. This people are going to be discriminated in how they respond to Jesus Christ. Remember the theme? What do you think I am? What do you say I am? Jesus said. So, people are discriminated in the plan of God by their response to the person of Christ. And in Matthew chapter 3, when John the Baptist is um, preaching to the people of his time, and he says in verse 11, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I am. I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And with his winnowing fork in his hand, he will thoroughly clear the threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. You see the judgment there? It's always there. Judgment, salvation. You can't get one without the other. But there's the discrimination. Jesus Christ is a divider. 
and God discriminates against evil. Today, we're afraid to say, and it's true, there's, there's false discrimination. But I remember uh, last year that we were talking about uh, in, in Maryland, there was an issue that had come up in the House of Delegates, and uh, I was writing to a, to a Christian member of the House of Delegates, and I pointed out to encourage them to stand uh, on this issue. I said, look, if they're saying to you that you shouldn't vote but it's something to do with uh, defining marriages, you know, that uh, Adam and Adam and Steve and Joe can get married and all the rest of it, um, because we're not going to discriminate. Um, and I said, if, if they're saying that discrimination is evil, the perfect rejoinder is to say, excuse me, can you name one law that has ever been made by this bo legislative body that doesn't discriminate? Think about it. If a law says that you shall do this, doesn't the law discriminate? It discriminates against those who obey the law and those who disobey the law. So here you are, you yak yak and that discrimination is bad, and you're passing a rule and the rule discriminates. So you can't get away from discrimination. The very act of legislating discriminates. So come on, what are you talking about? So that cuts down the argument down to size. Now we're not talking about all discrimination is bad. No, it isn't. If you believe that, you never pass a law, because every law discriminates. So now it's not an issue of discrimination. It's the criteria of discrimination. Oh, okay. Now we can get away from all the slimy words and sloppy use of vocabulary. And let's get down to what the real issue is. It's the criterion on which you discriminate. And the criteria of discrimination is the law. And here, the criteria of discrimination is the act of belief or unbelief in Jesus Christ. So, the salvation that has, and if you come forward to John chapter 3, you'll see that it's not just the synoptics in which this theme of discrimination is given, but in John chapter 3, 18, right after the verse that everybody knows, it says, he who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. In other words, a person incriminates themselves by rejecting Jesus Christ. And they'll come up with all kinds of excuses why, well, it wasn't clear, and I don't know whether I can believe the New Testament, and it's all the other stuff. But it comes down to the fact that everybody does know God, and here is his son being offered for salvation, and I thumb my nose at him. And I, God's supposed to open the door uh, because I have such a cover-up excuse why I thumb my nose at his son. Like he's going to be really buy into this thing. So one of the things we want to see is that in this age, starting with Pentecost, when the church is actually formed on earth, all the way down to the rapture, when the church is taken away from the earth, during this period of time, you've got discrimination going on. A progression of discrimination where God calls out a certain subset of people based on their response to the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, one way in which this happens is a truth down the bottom of page 15 of your notes 
I introduced a word there that we did not, we kind of played with it back when we were dealing with doctrine justification. But here's a good time to bring this vocabulary word up. Imputation is a word that is used primarily by accountants. To see how it's used, turn to the book of Philemon. And we'll start from the elementary idea of, of the base meaning of this word. And then we'll go to the theological, spiritual meaning that Paul used. It didn't start with theologians, it started with accountants. And it's interesting, in all the things that archaeology digs up in ancient civilizations, you know, volumetrically and numerically, the subject material is dug up most, at least in the Babylonian area and Kineform. It's, it's all the records of, of accountants. I mean, it'd be amazing. You, you read and translate this stuff. Uh, Joe Blow sold three pots to Sam Jones. And that's what half these clay tablets are all about. And people think they're big, dark secrets from history. And what it is, they're receipts for business deals. And Philemon, in this case, here's a flavor for this word impute. And it gets away from the theology so you can just see it in normal, everyday business. <clears throat> in verse 18, uh, for those of you who don't know the argument of Philemon, uh, it's, an, it's a plea by Paul who uh, deals with an issue of a slave and a slave owner. And so in verse 18, if he, the slave, has wronged you, the slave owner, in any way, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Impute it to me. There's the basic root stem of the word impute. It has an economic street usage. And it simply means to credit to somebody's account. Charge it to an account. So, Paul uses this term, this street term. By the way, this is another good example of the fact that the New Testament is not some spooky, lofty theology text. Um, to the first century Christians to whom these letters were written, it was written in the language of the ordinary person on the street. Now, we've invested all kinds of content to this, and not wrongly, because the Holy Spirit has taken this vocabulary and he's increased the meaning of it. But originally these words had street meanings. And here's the street meaning here to credit. Okay, now that's the word that Paul picks up and now he appropriates the accounting term and he brings it over here and he says, the Christian has imputed to him the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we say that's justification. He is now justified. Why? Because the act of justifying is, is crediting Christ's righteousness to this guy's account. That's the picture of justification. And the thing to remember about it is that it's an objective thing that's happening. It's not a subjective thing. This has nothing to do... This guy may be having great emotions or he may have very little emotions. 
He may, his soul may be in turmoil. His, he may be very placid. It doesn't make a particle of difference when it comes to imputation. Imputation is not given on the basis of personality. It is not given on the basis of an emotional thermometer. Imputation is not felt. It's not detected. It's not smelled. It's not measured. It, uh, you can't have a dial and find out where it is. There's no calculator involved. And it is a transaction that happens mysteriously beyond all our perception. The only way we know is because the Word of God tells us this. And it gets back to faith. It gets back to trust. And that's why we can't live our lives on the basis of how we feel or what happened yesterday morning or something else. It goes back to the stability, comes back to the Word of God. What does the Word of God say? And it's a cold-blooded transaction. It's no more emotional than crediting to your account or debiting to your account. It's, it's a, an accountant's action. That's very unromantic. It's unspiritual sounding. And it sounds like it, it's a kind of a, a cold water thing. It has tremendous and powerful applications. If you understand <coughs> that we come to God with a deficit because we're sinners and He is righteous and holy, we have to have our account on the plus ledger. We come minus. And so God credits the righteousness of Christ over to our account. He does it without feeling. We can appreciate this and we can respond to the Lord and there's motions there. But the emotions aren't in the imputation. They follow the imputation. The work of God first, emotional response second. And you can't respond emotionally to any work of God if you don't first believe that the work of God happened. And that's why it gets back primarily to faith. So what we want to show then is that in this judgment salvation, number one, here we have grace before judgment. In this case, how long has the grace gone on? The grace has gone on from the day of Pentecost on to tonight. Nineteen plus centuries. That's how long the period of grace is. And, but one day it's going to come to an end, just like these other grace periods came to an end, and it will come in judgment, and the Lord Jesus Christ is giving out the grace, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to do the judging. <clears throat> then we come to this, and we say that the Lord Jesus... Notice, in each one of these cases now, unlike the Exodus and the flood, who is the center of all these? The Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is the center of the grace. He's the center of the judgment. He's the center of the perfect discrimination because the discrimination is based upon whether we receive or reject Jesus Christ. All right, so now we come to the fact, as we said before, we come to the one way of salvation. And this is number three. There's only one way. Not three, not five, but there's only one way. There is no other name given among heaven whereby we may be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It doesn't say believe on Paul, believe on Peter, believe on Confucius or anybody else. It's just there. One way of salvation. Now this is very offensive to people. But the offense ought not to be seen when, when, if, if you encounter this. A good way of, of discussing it is to say, well, wait a minute. Don't blame Jesus for the one way of salvation doctrine. Don't blame Paul for that. Where does it go back to? Do you remember? Framework. Go back in the Old Testament. 
What was that? Call of Abraham. What happened with the call of Abraham in 2000 B.C.? God stopped ministering directly to all the people groups. Up to that time, you had Melchizedek's all over the place. These were people in each people group that were acting as king and priests. That cut off. Now, God picks Abraham exclusively. Exclusively. And the Jew follows the call of Abraham. So this is not new with the New Testament. There was only one way. Remember the Exodus? What was the only one way that you could be saved by your firstborn child? Could be saved. There's only one way. Shed blood on your door. There's no other way is acceptable. And I imagine there were Jewish people who didn't do that. And there were Jewish people who lost their firstborn child because of that. Why? Because God says, I'm not going to make three ways for this. Now, this is very difficult for us as Christians, and it will become increasingly difficult. We will be pressured and maneuvered and castigated for exclusivism. That is not acceptable in today's society. We live in a, quote, pluralistic society, and we, as a Christian group, are going to bear the brunt of this sort of thing. And we have to think about it. We have to prepare. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks a reason the hope that is in you. It behooves you to think through what are you going to do when people start recriminating you for being a religious bigot who believes your way is the only way. Well, one of the first thing you can do is just blunt that. It's not that you believe your way is the only way. It's just that you learn something from Jesus Christ. So argue with him, not with me. I didn't create this truth. It's been around for 20 centuries. And you'd know better if you would read the Bible. If you can read. People have trouble reading ballots. I imagine they have trouble reading the Bible. So the point is that People have to understand that you aren't generating this. So don't, don't accept that. When somebody comes up and says, Well, I mean, you're a bigot because you believe in your way. Not my way. Sorry. It had nothing to do with it. Argue with Paul and Jesus. And that you just sidestep. See? You sidestep the blow. Blame it on Jesus. All right. Why, though, is there one way? If we think maturely about it, what do we say when we went through the life of Christ? Remember? We said there were four things in the life of Jesus Christ. So let's go back and look at those. He said his birth, his life, his death, and resurrection. Now let's look at that death a minute. What do we say was the underlying issue when we talked about the death of Christ and the substitutionary blood atonement? What's the idea under that? Justice. Remember? The person who rejects the substitutionary blood atonement of Jesus Christ, whether they're in a cult or whether they're in a, a religion like Islam, whatever, but anybody, anybody that rejects the substitutionary blood atonement of Jesus Christ has got a problem with biblical justice. Because biblical justice is at its heart restitutionary. And it's God's holy standard. And he says the only price is a life for a life. 
And so therefore, the substitution, the word substitution, it's not just blood atonement, it's a substitutionary blood atonement. Somebody took my place. Somebody took your place. That's why we remember that. And that's because there's no other meeting ground before the justice of God. Since he is his standard, he defines the meeting ground. And he says there's only one place. It always has been that way. Eden was the one place where he communed with Adam and Eve. One any other place. Walked in the garden. Now I want this is my meeting ground, not somewhere else. You, can, you want to meet me? Meet him here. So it's always been that way. This shouldn't strike us as foreign. So it's inherent in the Lord Jesus Christ that He provided one way of salvation. He provided the one way because of the holiness of God. Okay. Next we come now to a thing that we're going to expand on, and the notes that you got tonight expand on this uh, an enormous amount. And we're going to spend quite a bit of time, actually there's five points to this doctrine, but it's point four that we're going to spend an inordinate amount of time on, uh, probably two or three Thursday nights before we're done. I'm going to stop our progress here. We've got grace before judgment, the perfect discrimination, and one way of salvation. Now we're going to get into something else that happened in all of those previous judgment salvation events. Think about it. In the flood event, what was judged? Men and nature. Nature was judged. Remember God said he curses the ground. It wasn't just cursing man, it was cursing the ground. So nature was involved in the judgment man and nature. Okay? We got that one. Let's move now to the second judgment uh, salvation event and that's the Exodus. What were what was involved in the judgments of the Exodus? Well, you can say, well, the firstborn sons were involved in people. What was involved in turning the Nile red? Nature. What was involved in bringing the flies all over Egypt? Nature. So, nature and man were involved in God's judgment. Nature is always involved there. So what we want to do, because now in the New Testament, we, some, a door is opened. And we've got to walk through this door. And if we do, and we have enough patience and stick to it, now here's where we're going to come to probably some areas of teaching that you may not have heard before. And I hesitate to do this in a framework series, but I think it's necessary so that we understand why the dispensational approach to Scripture and why the unique character of the church age is the way it is. So we're going to step through the door and we're going to start looking at this thing called nature. And what we're doing here is we're going to ask how is nature involved in the judgment salvation that Jesus Christ is doing? How is it involved? Surely in the book of Revelation you know it's involved because in the book of Revelation what happens to the sun and the moon? What happens to the earth? What happens to the sea? Jesus Christ is judging 
those parts of nature, right? Revelation. But what we want to look at is, is he judging a component of this right now? That's what we want to look at. And that introduces some, the angelic realm. And I, on page 17, I start working you into the realm of the angels. And we're going to start with the angels in Israel. We're going to move backwards in time to the angels and antediluvian civilization. And then we're going to move back all the way to the angels in creation and their role in the fall. So all of a sudden now, we're bringing up angelology, the doctrine of angels. And we're having to do that because of the wide ramifications of when Jesus Christ took the high ground, when he went forward and God gave him a name above every name, above every name, that he sits above all the principalities and powers. See, you can't appreciate the session of Christ if we don't deal with this angelic area, because it's the angelic area that he outranks. The session is the first time a human being has ever outranked all the angels in the hierarchy of God's creation. So, to appreciate the session of Christ, we have to pause and work through our way through angels. All right. If you turn to Deuteronomy 32, we covered this back in the days when we did the law. But I want to remind you, we won't spend a lot of time on this right now because it probably will be a review for most of you. But you remember that in Deuteronomy 32, we have sort of the national anthem of Israel. And Deuteronomy 32, Moses taught the nation. It's a song. And the song is not like our national anthem that harks back to Fort McHenry and an act of war in the War of 1812. But this national anthem not only looks past, it looks centuries down the corridors of time and looks all the way down to the end of Israel's history. And as the nation was taught to sing this, their national anthem, they were reminded that they had a special history. And the special history was not there just for curiosity's sake. History in the Bible is due to what? Let's think this through now. This is a point you will not get in your public school. Why is history recorded? In school, at least they used to when they taught history, they taught that Herodotus and Thucydides were the first historians. Well, that's not true. Herodotus and Thucydides were great. Joshua. Why? Why did that history become history? Who cares about history? Because what had God promised this nation? He promised them in a contract, remember, contract now. He went into a contract, and what is always true of a contract, whether it's a mortgage, whether it's a contract on your house, whether on your car, what's always true of every contract that you make? It has terms of performance. If you have a loan, the banks make you make a contract with the bank and it says you'll make a payment every month. What happens if you don't make the payment? 
they have certain rights to come in and start proceedings against you. Maybe even confiscating the property that's acting as the equity behind the loan. So, contracts have performance implications. Okay, how do you tell what the contract's broken or not? You have to measure performance on the basis of the terms in the contract. That's the essence of it. Now, God made a contract with the nation Israel. And the issue is going to be down through the corridors of time. Here's the point that God made a contract with Israel. Now, the issue is there's two parties to this covenant. God and the nation Israel. They go in to a contractual agreement that stipulates certain things are going to happen. God is going to do certain things. Israel is supposed to do certain things. Now, as time goes on, how can we tell whether there's a breach of contract or not? By recording performance. And where do we go to record performance for the contract? History. That's why history is written in the scriptures. The high purpose behind history is to track God and man's behavior. Now, this is why, frankly, before I became a Christian, I wasn't interested in history. And the reason I wasn't interested in history is because nobody bothered to tell me, so what? Why, so why should you spend all this effort learning all this material? I don't know. Nobody told me. Just told me to pass the test next week. And that's all we ever told. And then we wondered, gee, these kids aren't motivated. Well, of course not. There's nothing there to motivate them. The motivation is seeing the pattern of God work down through the corridors of time. Now I'm motivated. And I've heard this testimony so many times from new Christians, that, or old Christians, that I got my interest in history after I became a Christian. After I became a Christian, it transformed my whole life. After I became a Christian, I loved history. I liked to read about these things. Because it suddenly became interesting. There was a reason for it. There's a pattern behind it. It makes sense. Well, in Deuteronomy 32, in this great national anthem of Israel, at the very beginning, you notice that there's an invocation. Moses writes this, and you can read this and get all... You read this too fast, and you zip right by this and never notice it. But in verse 1, he calls heaven and earth as witnesses. Give ear, O heavens, and let me speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain and my speech distill as the dew. For I proclaim the name of the Lord. Now we can, if we had time, we, and I did this back when we went through the Old Testament, we could go to passages in Micah and Isaiah. I listed two of them there in the notes on page 17. And you would see that centuries later, down through into the period of the decline of the kingdom, just prior to the exile, during this period, what are the Old Testament prophets doing? They use the same language, they use the same invocation, and they say, oh heavens and earth, see that Israel has violated the laws of God. Now what are these guys talking about? Is this just poetry? Or is there something serious going on here that maybe we better just hold it a minute and think, do the heavens have eyes? Does the earth have ears? 
what's going on here? Is there, are, are we talking about spirits of the earth and spirits of the sky? In a way, yes, we are. These are angelic witnesses. And over the quarters of time, down through the centuries, angels have been watching. Angels are watching this drama. They're watching the performance of God and they're watching the performance of man. They are intrigued with history. They are the third parties. They are going to, in the final analysis, be the jury, as it were. Did God obey the contract? Did man obey it? You want to get this concept now, because I introduced imputation, I introduced all these things. This will all come together, but just follow, follow the reasoning. You've got more than God-man working here. There is a third party involved in this whole thing. Now, we know that the angels ministered to the nation. If you follow those verses I give you at the bottom, page 17, uh, we won't look at all of those tonight, but if you look, uh, if you particularly checked out uh, Acts 7.53, for example, you would see that Stephen, as he's dying, as he's giving his speech there, as he, just before he's capitally punished, uh, he mentions that the law was given through angels. There was fire and the messengers of God. Now, if you read, the, read what happened on the Exodus and Sinai, here's Mount Sinai, and there's smoke and there's fire, and Moses goes up to the top of Mount Sinai. You don't read anything about angels. But the Jews, down through history, have said that the law was given not by just the angel of the Lord, but it was given through angels, plural. Now, the only phenomena we have that we're looking at here is what? Fire and smoke. So what we're saying, watch it now, because we're working with nature. Angels, while they can personify themselves, show up as people and walk around and eat steak, like they did, they visited Abraham's house, they can also turn themselves into physical phenomena and act in and through physical phenomena. They have this strange quality of metamorphosis. They can transform themselves from person to fire to something else. They have this ability. They have a strange ability to interact. In the book of Revelation, when God breaks the seals, what does he say when the sun increases its intensity? Does he turn up the physics? How does he say? He doesn't say, let the radiation of the solar hydrogen engine increase. Rather, what he says, careful to the text, he says, he speaks to the angel of the sun. Now, what is going on here? This is totally, completely foreign to the way we're all brought up and educated about nature around us. What, what, you see, we fear because pagan, pagan peoples have spiritists, spiritism, you know what spiritism is, they believe there's a spirit behind every rock, and uh, when Carol and I were in Okinawa, and we, well, I actually saw this, where there were these Japanese people and the Okinawans, who don't want to be called Japanese people, would come to their graves. And you'd see the women sitting there, and they'd come up and they'd kneel, and they'd have put pieces of food and everything else right there in the cemetery. And they were all making offerings to spirits. 
And you could, they, you know, spirit of the tree, spirit of the rock, spirit of the departed one, all that. That's spiritism. Now, the reason we don't like to hear about spiritism is because it's chaotic. We say we believe in science. We believe in the uniformity of nature. We believe that nature runs by natural law. And that's indeed the only way we can know that things can be predicted and so on. God rules nature not through natural law. We don't know how he rules it. It just says, by his word, he rules. That's what gives the uniformity that we call the uniformity of natural law. It's not a natural law. It's God's word. It's the Logos. And it's working somehow through these spirit beings. They are around and in nature. If you want to see an example of this, let's turn to Psalm 104. 4. Here's the thought. Psalm 104, 4. It's talking about creation. He says, He makes the winds His messengers, flaming fire His ministers. Now, if you have a study Bible, you should see a note somewhere on verse 4. And you look out to the margin where your notes are, and you should probably see a reference to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 7. Because the author of Hebrews interprets verse 4 as referring to angels. And if the author of Hebrews is correct, and we believe he is, then what he is saying in verse 4 is that winds and fire are intimately related to, or perhaps are actual metamorphisms of angelic beings. Not that all wind and all fire is, but there's something peculiar going on in material, physical nature that we do not understand. But it's here. And we're going to explore this area of angels in some depth now. If you'll look at the notes that we just handed out tonight, we'll move into this area and uh, relate it to the session of Christ and what he, is, what he is doing today, and what the big argument is. And I think when we get through this, it will give renewed appreciation for why we go things through things like the faith rest drill. Father, we thank you for our time together tonight. We thank you that in your light we see light, and that your word guides us. And we look to you to illuminate our hearts that we may understand you and your kingdom and your, the handiwork of your hands. We thank you for the salvation that you have so graciously bestowed upon us. May we learn to appreciate it ever more deeply. And we ask that as we work our way through the promotion of your Son to your right hand, that we can share in the understanding that the New Testament authors have of this rather stupendous point in history. And may we be encouraged and edified and strengthened with this great truth. We ask it in Christ's name.
men. One of the verses that I didn't cover tonight, but it shows you another aspect, um, and I'm sure you all know the passage, uh, of the, the role of angels in history, is um, in uh, Daniel chapter 10. Um, in that passage, the, one of the angels comes to bring an answer to Daniel's prayer. And Daniel had been praying for three weeks. And uh, I imagine Daniel was a little concerned why he never got an answer. And um, when the angel finally comes to him, he gives a strange excuse why he didn't show up. If you turn to Daniel 10, it's very interesting. And this gets into something next week we'll pursue it in more depth. Um, that angels are intimately related to the visible powers, the visible political powers. That it's as though there's a shadow regime behind the, the visible political picture. And uh, in Daniel chapter 10, verse 10, by the way, verse 10 of Daniel is a neat repeat of what happens when angels show up at certain times. I was recently watching a, a film on the New Testament and they had some inane rendition of when Peter was in jail and the angel came delivered him out and they had this spooky light that showed up. You know, I just wondered, did the producer of this film ever read the text? Do you know what the text says? The angel hit Peter and say, okay, get up, pal. We're out of here. Now, I mean, that strikes you as kind of funny, but, I mean, the word there, if you, if you look it up in the Greek, is he smacked him. And, you know, I don't know what it feels like, but I would imagine it would be quite an impression to get hit, to get the knuckle end of an angel's hand. But it happened. And here, it's another one of those passages, Daniel chapter 10.10, 10, these guys, when they show up, sometimes they're not very... Um, gentle. <laughs> uh, and then behold, in hand, and th this is great, this is a great translation of the Aramaic, very gentle. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. Well, now, it, it, it actually means it hit me and knocked me down. And I'm sitting there on my hand. How, what position are you in when you're on your hands and knees? Somebody went up and shoved him down. And, and then he said to me, O oh, Daniel, man of high esteem. Now, I don't know whether these angels have a sense of humor or what, but it's very interesting to watch their behavior in some of these points. They seem to have sarcasm. Uh, remember the two angels that showed up at the ascension and said, what are you guys looking for here? Uh, and now here they, he comes and knocks them on the floor and says, oh, you're a great man. Understand the words I'm about to tell you. And stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. I mean, this guy, there was a, a real effect when this angel showed up. He said, don't be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before God. Now, this is so encouraging for prayer. 
And by the way, this is another case where angels are involved in answered prayer. He says, uh, unhumbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was opposing me for 21 days. And then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now I've come, and he goes on to say, I've come to give you a, a, an account of this and that and the other thing. But uh, notice that there's 21 days that go by, and there appears to be some sort of an angelic conflict going on because he says, the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Now, the, the Persia was one of those Gentile kingdoms. Remember in the, book, in the book of Daniel, you have the four kingdoms, Babylon, Media, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And here he's referring to that second kingdom, the kingdom of Persia, and he's saying there's a prince of the kingdom of Persia. Now the question would be, is he talking about the king, Darius, or somebody like that? Or Xerxes, you know? Who, who's he talking about? Well, it's quite clear from the context that it, pro it isn't a human being that's referred to as the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Because it's in, it's in this invisible angelic realm. The prince of that kingdom opposed me for 21 days. Now, it's like this angel. I mean, this is very spatial. This is very uh, physical in the sense of location, that this angel is sent from the throne of God. Where was Daniel? Daniel was living in what kingdom? The kingdom of Persia. So he's living inside this political realm. And the angel said, I tried to come to you, and I, I, I had to fight my way in. It's like, he's, it's like an incoming missile. And he's having to go through the airspace, hostile airspace. Now, this is very sobering. If we're going to take these passages seriously, this is saying that above these kingdoms, there's a thick cloud of darkness, of angelic beings. And this is not to get spooky and scare people. This is just simply to say, when God says, I want you to live the Christian life a certain way, because, and, and then, you know, you have Ephesians 6, and you do we wrestle not with principalities and powers, and so on and so forth. There are reasons why the Christian life is set up the way it is, and it sometimes doesn't make a particle of sense to us. But if we will put our lives in the context of a higher struggle that's going on in the invisible realm, our lives and our trials and our tribulations and our acts of faith, our acts of disobedience, our confession of sin, all this is part and parcel of a greater drama that's going on. And God isn't getting spooky with us and he doesn't tell us all about this. But he gives us enough information in scripture that angelic beings are all around. There are strange passages in the New Testament and you can go to commentary after commentary and basically, as scholars admit, they really don't know what, what. It's just this report that talks about worship services. Angels are watching. And, and then he makes certain things about polity and women and men and their roles and all the rest of it. But why, why if you're talking about 
the, the, the organization of a Sunday morning service, what are you talking about bringing angels in and saying angels are sitting there watching the whole thing? Um, because they are. So this is the point I'm trying to get at. As we go into the church age, this angelic thing that's implicit in the Old Testament suddenly becomes very explicit. It's referred to specifically. It is tied to Christ in his session. That he take he has he has pull rank now on this whole thing. That the nature of the angelic conflict has changed. So there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. And that's what we're trying to get at in the notes, and that's what we try to introduce to you tonight, um, that to appreciate the session of Christ, we have to get into this area, or it doesn't make any sense for him. You know, he's ascended to heaven, and he's above all principalities and powers, and we don't deal with what the principalities and powers are. Um, we have a few questions, uh, question, a few minutes for some question and answer, but I did want to make that point that we're going with this uh, in a pattern. We're not making isolated remarks, yes. Um, as far as weather in like the last 10 years, you know, where it seems to, we have these extremes and storms and things like that. Um, you know, people say an act of God. To me, I, I've wondered in the last couple of years if it isn't just, you know, fallen angels or almost like the prince of the air. Because Ephesians 2 talks about... Yeah, everybody turn to Ephesians 2. Uh, Debbie's bringing up a very interesting passage. And, and there's a structure in this particular verse that you want to pay attention to. And it's one of those places where you can read at 60 miles an hour and miss it. Go ahead, Debbie. Well, it says, you know, Ephesians 2, 1. As, as for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Um, you know, but the, the ruler... Of the power of the air. Now, and it's the same spatial thing you see in the kingdom of Persia. I mean, this angel is trying to get into the airspace, so to speak, to get down to where Daniel is, and he's having a problem. He's literally having a problem. He's having to fight his way in, and he was unsuccessful. I mean, whatever these evil powers are, they resisted a messenger of God for 21 days. And the messenger of God had to go get help from another angel to bust through. So... I mean, here you have the good angels, and they're having problems. And that's what that text is saying. Now, this passage in Hebrew, in Ephesians 2, uh, Debbie referred to, <clears throat> notice in the second clause, see where it says, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. Now, see that second one, where it says, according. <clears throat> now, look at the sequence of nouns. And imagine yourself diagramming that sentence. According to the prince of the power of the air. Now, the air, Debbie's right. The word air there means atmosphere. No question about it. And over the air, backing to the left of the noun air, there you see the word power. <clears throat> power of the air. Now, we would translate that uh, as the... You know, the, the, the word power there has a personality to it. <clears throat> so
So the idea that there's a power of the air, Ephesians 2, 2. And then it says, there's a third noun. See, there's three nouns there, not two. So if you look at it, it says the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. <clears throat> now, the power of the air, and I forgot the Greek structure here. I knew it one time, but I, haven't, I didn't look at it before tonight. But I believe that the pneuma, pnefma, the noun for the next clause, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, the issue is what is that in apposition with? Is the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience in apposition to the noun power? Or is it in apposition to the noun prince? And that's a discussion. And that has to be settled on exegetical grounds. And I've forgotten, it's been a long time since I was in the text, and I've forgotten which one it is, but what I remember about going, working through that text is that it's not altogether obvious. And that's one of those studies that you have to kind of do and, and, and work out your cases and see how it fits together and look through different sequences when that happens in the Greek text. So, pertinent to our discussion tonight is the fact that the atmosphere, there's a spirit in the air, and then there's a prince over that. And so, you could say the prince corresponds to Satan, but Satan isn't the prince of the air. He's the prince of the power of the air. So there's intermediate thing going on here between Satan and the, and the natural forces. And that appears to be like the prince of the kingdom, remember the prince of, of Persia. So there's a whole structure here. There's principalities and powers. What's that? There's some sort of ranking that's involved. There's some sort of hierarchy involved. There's a structure going on. And that is a very, very important point because what we're going to find is that critics of premillennial dispensational theology always like to say that we do nothing in the church age. The church age is just sort of a big waste. Nothing happens. That we postmillennialists believe in progress. I mean, the church is doing something. It's conquering the world. Yeah, it sure is. Notice. Um, we're, we're progressing in history. Well, they have a point in one regard. If Jesus Christ attained the throne in victory, what is going on now? Is there progress being made? And our point in getting into the angelic area is you can't answer that question unless you deal with the angelic powers. Jesus Christ is doing something. He has been doing something for 19 centuries. It's not wasted time. Something is going on and it involves the church, but it involves also these principalities and powers. When you see the prince of the power of the air, it's in opposition to Christ, right? You walked, look at verse 2, you walked according to the course of this world. Who sets the course of this world? It's this prince of the power of the air that sets the course of the world system. And obviously Paul is saying that verse 4, God being rich in mercy and so on, he loved us, we were dead, he made us alive together in Christ. And notice in verse 6, now this is why I'm working through this angel thing for you. If you look at verse 6, that's not going to make sense. 
unless we do something here. Unless we spend time trying to understand the principalities, the powers, the rank of Jesus in this invisible realm. Because he makes this statement in verse 6, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly or spiritual places in Christ Jesus. Now there's a load of truth in there. And it's hard to extract. And it's not just words, blah, 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 blah. It's nice-sounding words, you know. This is making some very definite claims about what our role is in all this. And that somehow we are linked to Christ's session, his ascension and session. And then he goes on to, we wrestle with principalities and powers. There's a fight going on, in other words. And it's naive to think that it's just a political conflict or it's just a racial conflict or it's just a crime versus law-abiding citizens conflict or it's just drug addiction or it's just alcoholism or it's just this or it's just that or it's just climate it's just, you know, it's just. All these things are conspiring together. There's a pattern going on and we don't know what the whole pattern is. And to get back to Debbie's point about the, the climate, one of the problems we have is in, in climate studies is that the averages that have been developed, the average behavior of whatever this mass is, <coughs> was all made during the um, 40s and 30s when the, when the climate was reasonably orderly. But it doesn't go very back in time. And one of the arguments that's going on in, in my profession is global warming, of course. <coughs> and it's, it's politically expedient, and shall I translate that to mean it's budgetarily expedient for, uh, for, for various agencies to claim that it's anthropogenic. <coughs> that is, that the global warming is caused by man. Because if you say that, you can, quote, fix the problem. See, this is man trying to fix the problem. The, the flaw in that particular line of reasoning is that there was global warming in the time of the Vikings. It was so warm that vineyards were growing in, Eng in New England uh, by themselves, and when the Vikings visited the New England shores, they called it Vineland. They called Greenland, which is one big ice cap, Greenland. Why'd they call it Greenland for? It isn't green, it's white, it's rocky. What do they call Greenland? I had that same question because the point is that, that there have been warmings before in history. And the question is that there's one man, a professor actually in the department I came from at MIT that raised the sarcastic question. He says, I wonder how many cars and factories the Vikings had. Um, so the point is we don't know what's causing it. That's what the real bottom line is. But we have these people that are absolutely in a political frenzy to solve the problem and, and prevent global warming from happening because it's all due to the United States or it's all due to the bad factories and stuff. We don't really know what's going on, frankly. Um, and it's just, it's just it's, if you say that, you get your budget funded for next year because you can say, I've got a new research project that's going to give this. You know. <clears throat> but... All of it, uh, I'm sure angelic beings are involved. 
but we can't get, the point is don't get spooky about it. Control, control the angelic realm with the sovereign word of God. It's, it's all by God's permission. So even if there are into these intermediaries, it's just that we have to understand, like that angel did in Daniel 10, that the good guys can take, uh, take a lot of opposition. The bad guys don't just cower and they don't just fall over every time somebody mentions the Lord's name. Here was a powerful angel, and they didn't keel over for the powerful angel. He had a fight. So the question is, why? And how do they fight? What's all involved in this thing? And from there we go into why the New Testament is written the way it is. Um, I've talked all the time. Sorry about that. Wanted more questions, but let's uh, we'll, we'll we'll get into this. Have lots of time. I've decided we're not going to rush through this because it's going to take some time to go through it. So.